Welcome to the PTA Elevation Podcast, where we help physical therapist assistant students pass the NPTE on the first try without wasting time or money. To learn more about the services we offer, find us on Facebook by searching PTA Board Study Group or fill out the form linked in the description. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's podcast. What's up, guys? Today, we're going to be going over rotator cuff tears and slash repairs because, I mean, we're usually seeing these patients on the recovery side of things. So I'm going to go over kind of like the like process of rotator cuff repairs and how to rehab them appropriately because the board is going to ask some questions in regards to safety. So a lot of times when we're seeing a rotator cuff tear on the boards, if it's a full thickness, it's probably been repaired. And the boards are going to ask you about safety at certain parts of the recovery process. Again, out in the clinic, in the real world, there are different protocols for every surgeon who does any sort of rotator cuff repairs, and they want to make sure that you're following that. However, there's some general guidelines that like, I'd say most like 95% of surgeons will agree is kind of how we should go about rotator cuff repairs in the rehab process. So let's get started with the tear itself. So big thing to know when it comes to rotator cuff tears is the rotator cuff muscles. So there are four of them. Everybody likes to use the SITS kind of acronym. So the S-I-T-S. So that stands for supraspinatus, infraspinatus, teres minor, and subscapularis. So good kind of to remember that and know which ones do what. The supraspinatus is responsible for the first 30 degrees of abduction at the shoulder. And it's a very, very, very small amount. However, we will see some symptoms start to show with the patient if they have a supraspinatus tear when they move into abduction. The next is the infraspinatus. And this is responsible for external rotation of the shoulder. Again, very small amount. However, it is one of the prime external rotators of the shoulder. Same thing with the teres minor, that is also external rotation. And then the subscapularis is the only one that does internal rotation. So that's a little bit bigger and that is on the back of the shoulder. So, well, like underside of the scapula. All of these collectively together will hold the humeral head in place. So that's the most important thing to be knowing about the rotator cuff. That's their like primary thing is that they're keeping everything in place and making sure that it's not going to become unstable and start to slip or do anything funky. So this is kind of what we should know about the rotator cuff and know that the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor, they all attach at the greater tubercle of the humerus and then the subscapularis connects at the lesser tubercle of the humerus. When it comes to the rotator cuff itself, the most common muscle that's going to be torn is going to be the supraspinatus. So definitely the most common one. That's why I have it underlined right here. Forgot to mention that. That's super important. Okay, moving on to etiology. So how does a rotator cuff tear happen? Essentially, an increase in age is probably one of the most common reasons why we would see this in our older population. So remember, as our you know, geriatric friends begin to age, their tissues are going to lose their tensile strength, as well as their vascularity, which means that they're more susceptible for any sort of like trauma or tears, even if it's just a simple action. I know at a patient, we repaired her, well, I didn't repair it, but we rehabbed her for a rotator cuff repair. And then she came back about six months later and we're like, what the heck happened? And she had, she was very upset and she jammed her key inside her door to try to get in. And she tore her rotator cuff again. So again, 
elderly population is going to lose their tensile strength. So therefore that's why they're more susceptible. So something that might not seem like a big kind of traumatic event for them might end up tearing one of their rotator cuff tendons. In younger populations, this is usually due to some sort of injury. So it'll either be a crush injury or any sort of other traction injury, like their arms pulled in a weird way, or maybe they've tried to pick up something that's like way, way, way too heavy. So we'll see this overuse injury a lot as well, along with the traumatic injury. That's another way we'll see it with an overuse injury in the workplace. So a lot of warehouse workers, we're going to see some sort of rotator cuff tear. I'd say like most of my work on patients that have been a shoulder patient, they're most of them are rotator cuff tears in some sort of way, either that or it's a bicep or a labrum tear, something along the lines of that or any sort of sports injuries. So you'll hear all the time, any sort of like player that is using their arms for whatever, it could be a football player, it could be a baseball player, something like that. They pull something weird on a weird way, they'll end up like tearing their rotator cuffs. So this is some of the ways that this can end up happening. And again, there are different degrees of tears, which I am going to link in the comments of this video, just to make sure that we have the correct numbers for that. So what does it look like? This is going, when you have a patient and you're, it's, it's, they haven't had it repaired or anything, they're coming in with shoulder pain for some sort of reason, the PT is definitely going to be doing all of this screening and they should be the ones that'll probably come up to you and be like, yo, Joe over here, I'm pretty sure he tore his supraspinatus. Either that or their infraspinatus, something like that. They'll come over and be like, this is definitely what's going on. But we have to be aware of how this is gonna be documented so then we can help treat this patient. And also if this patient comes in with anything new that we can recognize these signs and be like, yo, PT, something's going on. So what does it look like? Pain with any sort of movements that are going to put tension on or like any sort of like tensile stress on the tendon or muscle that we think might be affected or torn. So for example, let's go back to the supraspinatus and that's the most common. They're moving into abduction and they're like, ooh, ugh. They're like grabbing the outside of their shoulder and they're like, ow. So you'll kind of see that with that. If it's one of the um, external rotators as they move into external rotation, they're like, ooh, ow. That could be teres minor or infraspinatus, something along those lines. Again, one of the special tests for the subscapularis, and I'm gonna go over this on the next slide, is like the belly press where you like press in as if you're going into internal rotation as you press into your stomach, that is going to flare up for if it's a subscapularis sort of injury. So again, regardless of which tendon it ends up being, it's going to probably radiate along the lateral side of their brachium, kind of like up in here. Like if you're like cold, like rubbing your shoulder is going to be along down that way. They're going to grab the side of their shoulder and it might even radiate all the way down their entire upper extremity. So as with many other tears, regardless if it's a tear of a tendon, a muscle, a ligament, something, the pain is going to be worse with a partial tear. tear. So they're pulling on like tiny bits of the tendon that are still like attached. So when they're pulling on it like that, if it's a partial tear, it's going to hurt a lot more than if it's all gone and it's trying to pull and there's nothing pulling on it. So with a complete tear, you don't feel it as much. So the more partial the tear is, usually the more it's going to hurt with these patients. It's going to be painful to lift the arm up overhead in any sort of way. Again, if it's supraspinatus kind of out to the side like that, that's going to be even worse. But pretty much with anything, because it is stabilizing the humeral head as you're lifting up, that is not going to feel too good for the patient. So they're going to start to notice like 
they pull their arm kind of weird and then all of a sudden now they can't like lift up overhead it's not like a slow insidious onset it's like something happened so that's kind of how you'll differential diagnose between that or adhesive capsulitis which kind of slowly is an onset with they'll have mobility deficits so for example let's say if it's subscapularis which like you have to reach behind your back they're going to have issues with like wiping themselves or dressing themselves to reach to unhook their bra or something like that so again you'll start seeing those mobility deficits with being able to do tasks that involve using that particular muscle or tendon depending on where it's end up being torn and usually with rotator cuff tears it's a tear of the specific tendon they're going to have crepitus so that is the crunchiness in the shoulder that when they're lifted around, they're feeling, you can feel it as you put your arm, your hand on there and it'll just get more and more crunchy as there's an issue because again, the rotator cuff tendons are holding the humeral head in place. And if one of them's kind of messed up, you're gonna start crunching around in there. And it's gonna be worse at night. So a lot of these patients are gonna complain they've rolled over onto their left side and that's where they have the tear on their left, like supraspinatus, for example. They'll roll over onto their left side and be like, oh my God, it'll send them through the roof. They'll wake up and it's going to cause a lot of difficulty with them sleeping. So these are the kind of big things that you're going to look for when you have somebody coming in that might have a rotator cuff tear. So let's go over a couple of the special tests. The supraspinatus test is commonly referred to as the empty can test. And honestly, when I was putting this together, I kind of was like, what the heck is a supraspinatus test? And I saw it said empty can and I'm like, I've never heard anybody call it supraspinatus test. So I will say the board's might throw in supraspinatus tests, but they're probably going to call it the empty can test. So that is where you're going to come at like a 45 degree ish angle. You're going to take your hand, you're going to put your thumb down as if you're taking a can and dumping it out and you're going to push. And if they have any sort of pain in there, when you're like kind of resisting as if you would resist for a manual muscle test, if they're having pain with that, that is a positive sign. And I will say with any of these special tests, if you're doing them on a patient, they should not be taken by themselves. The special tests are only really valid and reliable with use with other observations and like a com combination of the observation of the test as well as their subjective information. Moving on, drop arm tests is you're going to pick the arm up to the side. You're going to help the patient lift their arm up to the side and then you're going to let go and if their arm starts to drop down or if they're lowering and it's starting to be painful, that's also a sign of supraspinatus. Again, we're seeing that we're testing this in sort of an abduction position, which makes sense because the supraspinatus does abduction. And for spinatus tests, that is one where you're going to, it's kind of similar. We're testing external rotation is essentially an external rotation manual muscle test. There's really nothing else too special about that. You'll just do it in standing coming up pressing on it. And the external rotation lag is you're going to see if as they're moving to external rotation, it's kind of slow and jerky and kind of like as you're manually muscle testing, it's kind of, you'll start to press on the muscle and it'll kind of jerk down. That's kind of what you'll see with any sort of lag test. There's also a lag test for supraspinatus, and it's just the muscle is not moving as quick as it should. And it's kind of the same as if you're thinking about quad lag, it's all under the same thing. Hornblower sign, this is very rare for teres minor. I usually the teres minor isn't involved, but um, I'm gonna link a video below showing hornblower sign just to make sure it's kind of your out to the side like this, you're coming up into, it's another external rotation test. Essentially a lot of these end up just being fancy manual muscle testing. Subscapularis, the liftoff test is you're gonna put your hand behind your back as if you were like reaching. And a lot of patients, if they're having a subscapularis tear, they're not gonna be able to get back there. 
you're going to then lift it up off your back. And if it aggravates any symptoms, that's a positive sign. Bear hug is essentially, you come into a bear uh, hug position, you kind of take your arm, your like left arm, you put it over your right shoulder, you take your right arm, you put it over your left, you kind of hug yourself like that. That's going, if that aggravates symptoms, that could be sinus subscapularis. And then another one is the belly press. So you'll put your hand on your stomach, kind of like as if we're doing like bands, you know, with like the TheraBand or something, as you're showing them internal rotation, you'll get into that final position, you'll press into their belly. And if that flares up, that's going to be another positive sign. So this is kind of the things with the special tests. And I, the best thing I can think of for remembering special tests is kind of to do the motion. And if you are thinking about it, just think about like what action does each muscle do? And that kind of ends up allowing you to kind of figure out what exactly we're testing. And remember, signs, positive signs should not be taken in isolation. So how are we treating this patient? Well, as I said before, it really depends on the size of the tear and the extent of the loss of their mobility or function. Some patients have like a tiny partial tear and like they're pretty much good, like maybe like at like 90 degrees abduction, they're like, mm, that kind of doesn't feel too good. But for the most part with those patients who have like a really tiny tear, we're just making sure they're resting and then trying to build up some strength and stability in the shoulder because we can work with a little strain, we can work with a little tear and kind of fix it a little bit. And we don't need to do, do any sort of surgical interventions, but we got to make sure that they're okay. Again, as it starts getting bigger into like a medium to a large size tear, we're probably seeing surgery. So we might see these patients pre-surgery to get some strength. So then they're doing better after surgery. But most of these patients with rotator cuff tears, at least in the outpatient division, we're going to be seeing them post-surgical. So as I said before, every surgeon has their own little thing that they like to do in regards to their protocols to promote tissue healing and return to the patient's prior level of function. So some protocols are more conservative than others, but generally here's a bunch of um, guidelines that we're probably going to follow. And again, when we are treating these patients, especially in the early stages of them being post-op, they're going to be on some pain medication. So we have to be careful with that, with advising them and educating them on safety when it comes to driving. So the boards might ask something along the lines of the patient wants to return to driving, but like they're still on pain medication, you just gotta say, no, don't do that. So big on the safety. So here are some of the big safety things when it comes to the protocols regarding shoulder um, rotator cuff repairs. And there is, I, before I get into this, there's a great page on Instagram called Life After the Knife. And he posts all this cool stuff about like, uh, protocols or post-ops of very different surgeries. So I would definitely recommend checking him out. Anyways, moving on into our PT interventions for the first six weeks following a rotator cuff repair there, the patient is only going to be doing some gentle passive range of motion and just gentle range of motion in their available range. So I'm talking like pendulums and all of this other stuff. So I would say when this person is in this early stages of recovery, there's not much we can exactly do with the shoulder besides stretch a little bit and do some pendulums. Most of the things we're going to be doing with this patient are going to be like scapular setting. So we can do some shoulder squeezes, we can do some shrugs, just other things working on the postural muscles to keep them, you know, moving a little bit in that area so they don't get all locked up. And that also kind of keeps things a little mobile. So they're not going to end up in developing adhesive capsulitis post-rotator cuff surgery. As we move from six to 12 weeks, we're gonna slowly add in uh, pro progressive resistive exercises and some active range of motion, 
probably only to like 90 degrees until we can like get a little bit more strength back, a little bit more movement back. And the biggest thing during all these stages is just making sure that we're getting them back to their prior level of range of motion kind of thing to make sure that they're not um, getting uneven between the operated side and the unoperated side if that unoperated side was within normal limits. From 12 weeks on, we're continuing to improve the patient's range of motion. We're working on strength and endurance. And let's say if this is a worker's comp patient, this is when we would start adding a little bit more weight to kind of try to progress them towards like carrying objects and stuff like that. And it really isn't until like four months out that you would even consider picking up a box. Like a lot of these protocols are very conservative, but for the board's sake, I would say definitely know up to like 12 weeks of what kind of you can do at certain stages. Overall, with the patient at every level, as I said before, we're working on scapular stabilization, activity mod modification, and postural re-education. If the patient was operated on their dominant hand, obviously they're going to be in that abductor sling for a while, so they're not going to be able to use that hand really to like do anything. So we kind of have to help teach them different things of essentially, like we'll have to teach them how to redress themselves with only using one arm, how to wipe themselves. And these are like awkward conversations with the patients, but we do have to make sure we're doing them. And again, making sure their posture is okay because they're going to start leaning forward and really getting into that like locked internal rotation kind of position. Post-surgically, we need to make sure that we're getting those postural muscles pulled back so then they, we can kind of normalize things once they've finished recovering. And again, continue to slowly improve their range of motion. So I would say from this side, just making sure that at first, up to six weeks, very, very, very conservative. You're not doing any resistant exercise. Then you're slowly adding in some resistance and active range of motion from six to 12 weeks. And after 12 weeks, we're starting to work on that endurance, trying to get you back to whatever your normal activity level was. So I'd say keywords that you would want to think of when you're seeing this on the boards is any of the sort of rotator cuff special test needs, like the drop arm test, the empty can test, all of those things. If it says it's a positive sign that we're thinking rotator cuff, da, 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 da. Super spinatus, I would say definitely start thinking, okay, so rotator cuff muscle is something torn, is something wrong, is something going on? Think of that because I think even in like the real world, 90% of rotator cuff tears end up being like the super spinatus muscle. It's something around that number. It's a lot. Um, so that's the most common. So the boards is probably going to most likely test you on supraspinatus because it is the most common. They might be rude and throw in subscapularis, just to be mean, but definitely know this, the supraspinatus in those special tests. Any sort of pain in the shoulder. Again, this could be a plethora of things, but if you see that showing up, start to think in your arsenal of what's some shoulder things that could be going on. It could be rotator cuff. Decreased mobility, again, if you're having issues moving the arm around, it's going to be probably in the lines of some sort of tear in the shoulder, could be rotator cuff, could be biceps, could be labrum, could be adhesive capsulitis, but that's kind of where you're starting to think. Any sort of traumatic event, so like, as I said before, like that, like pulling injury that you're like, ow, or pushing injury, something like that, usually it's with a pull that you're like, ooh, that didn't feel too good, anything like that, start thinking, okay, this could be rotator cuff with any sort of like traumatic event because usually if it's traumatic something's being torn or broken or whatnot and then full slash partial thickness this is pretty much hallmark like that it's going to be talking about a rotator cuff if it's in regards to the shoulder so start to think about it in that way so everyone's favorite part the sample question
A physical therapist assistant is treating a patient who underwent a full thickness supraspinatus tear repair four weeks ago. The patient is eager to return to his job as a warehouse worker responsible for stacking boxes weighing up to 50 pounds. Which intervention would be appropriate for this patient? Number one, 10 pound box lifts. Number two, scapular squeezes. Number three, one pound bicep curls. Or number four, active range of motion to 90 degrees of flexion. So I'll give you guys a minute to think about that question. All right, guys. So the answer is number two, scapular squeezes. And this is because the patient is only four weeks out of rotator cuff surgery. So again, we should not be doing any resistant exercises. We should not be doing any lifting, any sort of active range of motion. We really got to keep it pretty conservative and just work on that postural muscles and any sort of, you know, other scapular mover muscles because the shoulder itself is not going to be doing much. That um, rotator cuff repair is the weakest around three weeks. So if we were going to do anything around four weeks, that could really, 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 really mess it up. So we want to make sure that we're doing a very conservative exercise that is either gentle range of motion or anything with like shoulder shrugs, squeezes, some depressions, anything like that, where we're kind of working on those postural muscles. That's probably the best intervention. Lifting a 10 pound box, the surgeon will literally like come and beat you up. Like, no, don't do that. Again, scapular squeezes is the answer. The one pound bicep curls. Okay, you're thinking like the bicep. That's not like really like part of the shoulder. But again, we don't want to be doing anything with the arms. It's too soon to be doing any sort of resistive exercises. We need to make sure that we're keeping it very conservative because even like the patient might start to like lift their arm or something. We really just want to keep some gentle, gentle range of motion. And like four weeks out, like that is very, very, very fresh. We do not want to be messing with that. Then active range of motion and 90 degrees of flexion. They are not ready to do any sort of active range of motion. Again, up to six weeks, passive, passive, passive. Once we get into that six to like 12 weeks, that's when we add that active range of motion, usually only to like 90 degrees, just because the patient probably can't get higher than 90 degrees at that point, but it's just to keep you within a protective range to work on that resistance. And then that would be a good time for us to be adding in that one pound weight and then 10 pound box lifts would probably be like four months out or more. So I hope that this was helpful for you guys today. Do anybody have any questions before I get off? Thank you for listening to this episode of the PTA Elevation Podcast. We look forward to continually serving you as you embark on your journey towards becoming a licensed physical therapist assistant. We thank you for your continued support and we'll see you in the next episode.